This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in the middle of chapter 21. Christians often express a desire to do God's will. It's the right response to a God that has done everything to save us. But almost as often, Christians will express the concern that they just don't know what God's will is for their life. But scripture is clear about God's will. We just need to pay attention and stop trying to negotiate the plan with God. Today, we'll discover just one of the ways God clearly tells us what his perfect will is for our lives. His desire is for productive, prayerful followers. And when we accept that as God's will, even the most difficult passages of life will take on new purpose and meaning. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So follow along with me in Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22, if you have your Bibles with you. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. In all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. I want to share with you Christ's twofold plan for your life and for my life as believers in Christ. Twofold plan. So I'm going to make two observations and that'll be the outline for our lesson this morning. So first, very clearly from the text, we know that he expects from us, according to verses 18 through 19, a productive Christian life. Now Matthew places this scene immediately after the cleansing of the temple. Now, this may not be the chronology that these events took place because, again, Matthew is not so much concerned with the timeline as he is with theme. But under divine inspiration, he placed this scene immediately after the cleansing of the temple, highlighting the uselessness of the leaders of Israel. They failed to acknowledge Christ, you remember. But Jesus then curses this tree, which you may find interesting here, or at least puzzling. And maybe his harsh tone bothers you a little bit. It's not new. Jesus uses the same harsh tone as he used last time in the cleansing of the temple. But his harsh tone here by talking to a tree may have shocked the disciples at first, specifically because Mark tells us it was not season for figs. So you're saying, wait a minute, why is he cursing a fig tree when it's not even season for figs? And why is he talking to a tree anyway? But this encounter, I want you to see, though strange, has a profound lesson. Another preacher called it a parable of action. So let's see what this parable of action is all about. Now, during those days in Jerusalem at that time, fig trees sometimes would blossom early, providing a rare opportunity for harvest. And when that happened... Leaves would appear indicating that there's a potential for an abundant crop. But in this particular case, this one on the side of the road, and by the way, this was an, a lone tree, we're told, had only the appearance of fruitfulness because it had leaves, but it didn't have the fruit. You see, 
And um, don't miss the parallel with the religion at the time and, and, and with every false religion today. It has the appearance of being pious. It has the appearance of being fruitful. Again, going back to the people of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, they wore the right wardrobe. They spoke the right words. They had the right customs. They used religious jargon. They used the Bible. So the false religion at the time it gave all the impression of fruit-bearing. But according to Christ's assessment, the facade did not match a transformed heart. Why, church? Because there is no fruit. When you have a transformed heart, when you have the right relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone, you will bear fruit. It may take time. Some people take more time than others. But fruit will always happen. And what we see here then in this scene is that spiritual barrenness frustrates Jesus to the point that he's now cursing this fig tree. And by the way, the divinity of Christ here is that he spoke and nature obeyed immediately. If you try that to the cherry tree in your backyard, I mean, don't let anybody see it because it's not going to happen. Now, John the Baptist, for example, had already warned the spiritual fakes of that time when he said to them in the beginning of the gospel, Matthew 3, verses 8 through 10, bear fruit, he says. That was the beginning of his ministry. He started his preaching by saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John is telling the fake religionists at the time, don't use your affiliation with Abraham as an excuse for thinking that you are already in the kingdom because God can turn anything into members of, of the kingdom of heaven. The illustration here is clear, meaning Gentiles will be invited to be a part of the kingdom. As for you, he says, you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now notice that John says in this passage, John the Baptist, that God expects good fruit. So not just any fruit, but good fruit. Because what these guys here, the Pharisees, were offering God was bad fruit, rotten fruit. So Jesus, in keeping with the same message of his forerunner, reminded the same people about his expectation of fruitfulness. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, that's how he kicks things off in that chapter. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men, to be noticed by them. Why, church? Because that's bad fruit. Seeking the approval of men is bad fruit. He wants us to seek the approval of God. So he says, beware of putting on the mask, of putting on the facade of putting on the hypocrisy. And that was the system of the Pharisees. And it goes on to this day. They produce fruit, but not the kind that God expects. Therefore, church, the lesson emerges so clearly here for us from the text. And here it is. Those of us who follow Christ, we claim to be his followers. We claim to love him. We should pursue a productive life, obviously. But in what matters to him, you see, we pursue a productive life in what matters to him. It's kind of pointless to be busy doing what God never asks us to do. I call this majoring in the minors. And we know clearly what God wants us to do. If you're a believer in Christ, he wants you to go make disciples of every nation. Now, how you do that is up to you. You don't need to be a full-blown evangelist. You don't need to be the leader of the door-to-door -door team here at the church. But you do need to be making disciples. of. You do need to be sharing your faith. Somehow, we know that he expects that. And, church, we must overcome the temptation to present fruit that we will earn our own satisfaction. 
or the approval of people because we don't call the shots in our own spiritual life, in our Christian life. He does. So we align our lives to match what he expects from us. So again, it's pointless to be seeking something he never intends for you to do. He expects us to present a genuinely transformed life because the gospel transforms. So if we have been really changed from the inside out, we will show that transformation one way or another, sooner or later. Again, there's no timeline for this. Some people demonstrate that change sooner than others. And it's not fabricated change. It's, it's a natural process that will change the way you talk, probably. It will change the way you present yourself. It'll change your affections. It'll change your goals and your dreams because you no longer live for yourself. You embrace selflessness, not the self-centeredness that we are already born with. And we see that process move gradually. It's a gradual process. And and I wish I could promise you that this was a straight line all the way up to heaven. But we all know by experience that our Christian life is stumbling, falling all the way to the kingdom of heaven. Welcome to the club. Now, many people appear to be Christian. We know that. They talk the talk. But their walk doesn't back it up. And that's the problem. They focus on doing more than being. Fitting perfectly the illustration of the barren fig tree here. So our focus should be in being what God wants us to be because what we are then will set the foundation for what we do. And if we are transformed, if we have been transformed by the gospel, everything we say and we do will flow from that. Now, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees here at the time, ancient Israel here, climaxed. In this particular week, Passion Week that we're studying here, when the the chief priests rejected Jesus officially, which caused them to plot his crucifixion. So Christ's pronouncement to the fig tree here represents his judgment on that type of unproductive religion. So here's the point of him cursing that tree. His point is to illustrate the judgment of God on unproductive religion. Therefore, church, every belief system, not only the Pharisees of the time, every belief system, even today, that fails to recognize him as the only way to the Father deserves the same kind of divine judgment. Even though they may feed the hungry, they may clothe the poor, and they may shelter the homeless, unless the heart is transformed, that counts for nothing. Spiritually speaking, yes, that counts for helping people, but unless the heart is transformed, that is a fruitless religion. You see? So, yes, if you love Jesus, go feed the hungry in the name of Christ. If you love Jesus, yes, go clothe the poor in the name of Christ. Go shelter the homeless and tell them, listen, I want you to know about a God that loves you, that he sent his son to die for you. And the reason I'm doing this is because I love you, because he loved me first. But otherwise, if you're doing this just to earn points with him or to invest in your PR campaign, it counts for nothing. Because that's what the Pharisees were doing, and that's exactly what Jesus is judging here representing by the judgment of the fig tree. So I have good news then. Christ judges fruitlessness here, very obvious in the text here. But he also grants grace. He offers grace. He always offers an opportunity for people to change their ways and embrace the right type of productivity that he expects. And what I mean by that is that God can make even a dead tree flourish because he specializes in rebirth. Listen to his promise to his people. Here again, this was the climax of Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ and therefore their spiritual bankruptcy. And you look at this and you say, they are just like that fig tree. And when we look at this, we see, oh, they are done forever. Just like that tree, God is done with Israel. 
Not so fast. Because here's what he says in Isaiah 27, verse 6. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout, and it will fill the whole earth with fruit. And also, in Ezekiel 36, verse 8, he promises, But you, O mountains of Israel, will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come. Paul describes this fruitful future for the land of Israel, even though they demonstrate fruitlessness here during the days of Christ. This is what Paul says. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. And again, the climax of that hardening is here. But a partial hardening has happening to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Romans 11 verses 25 through 26. And what he means by that, church, is that during the tribulation of the end times, the nation of Israel will finally recognize Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. They will realize, oops, we've been left behind. Jesus has come already and we missed him the first time. So the earth will witness the greatest revival that there ever was and that there ever will be. Thousands upon thousands of Jews will finally present the fruit of true conversion. And not only that, they will be the evangelists of that time along with Gentiles as well, but there will be at least 12,000 Jews from each of the tribes conducting the ministry of reaching the world for Christ during the seven years of tribulation of the tribulation of the end times. That is fruit of true conversion. That is the promise of God to the nation being fulfilled, demonstrating that He is gracious, where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. But I want you to know that there's more good news. His promise of fruitfulness is not limited to the nation of Israel. It extends to individuals of every tribe and every tongue and every ethnicity who come to him. Listen to Isaiah 56 verses 3 through 5. He says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. The reversal of fruitlessness is a popular theme in Scripture. In the physical realm, for example, we have Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah, and many others who became fertile miraculously and gave birth because of the miraculous power of God to transform a dead womb or a fruitless womb. So church, the standard is clear for the rest of us. God has restored wombs before. He will elevate Israel to fruitful glory. He calls foreman pagans the such were some of you in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, promising them that even sexual sinners can live a fruitful life in Christ. And he can restore you, my friend, to a life of productivity, the kind that honors him. And check this out, regardless of your past. You see, that's the grace of God. Because you say, Pastor, you don't understand. I have a criminal record. Oh, do you? You're in good company. God changed Paul, the hypocritical murderer, into a fruitful apostle. But you say, Pastor, you don't understand. I have adultery in my past. Oh, do you? Then rejoice because you're in good company. God transformed the Samaritan woman, a sexually impure woman, into a productive evangelist. And you say, Pastor, but I have all kinds of immorality in my past. Really? 
Then meet Rahab. God changed the former harlot Rahab into Rahab, the ancestress of Christ. Don't you say, Pastor, I have committed fraud. I'm the white-collar type of criminal. Friend, you are reading a book, the Gospel of Matthew, that is written from a former white-collar criminal. The scammer turned into a productive gospel writer. So what is the pattern, church? God can make you into a fruitful follower of Christ no matter your past. He desires that for you and for me. He's not done with you. The world may be done with you. You may look at the circumstances and say, there is no way that I can be used of God. Wrong answer. Not according to Scripture. Not according to the pattern we see here and the promises that we see from Jesus Christ. If He can use these people, He can use you. <laughs> if He can use me, He can use you for His glory. Not only does Jesus love undeserving sinners with an everlasting love enough to transform us, He desires meaningful fellowship with us. Think about that. Undeserving sinners with a rap sheet, with a criminal record, with a life of sin, with a past that doesn't honor God. But now because of the fact that He transformed us for His honor and glory, He wants us to be fruitful for Him. He desires meaningful and perfect fellowship with you. Now, that perfect fellowship is going to happen when we all get to heaven because we're going to live a glorified existence, but we can experience that type of joyous, meaningful fellowship with Him right now, today. John 15, verses 4 through 6, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, we know exactly what he means by that. We can do many things. God has given us the ability to think, the ability to produce. Some of you guys work with your hands and you're very good at it. We can do many things that we don't necessarily need God for in a human sense. But what he's saying here is, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing that really counts. Nothing of spiritual value will ever count unless you abide in me. So he can make you blossom again today, even though you consider yourself to be a withered fig tree. You say, Pastor, there's no hope for me. No, that's not what the Bible says, friend. And I'm here to tell you that there is hope, even if you don't see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. For example, love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, etc. You say, Pastor, I haven't seen those. I haven't experienced those in my life for a long time. Well, friend, good news. Again, draw near to Him. He'll draw near to you. Abide in Him. He will abide in you. So that's the point. He expects fruit from you and from me, the good fruit, the fruit that can only be produced by an abiding in Christ and by spending time in His Word, He expects that from you and from me. No matter what the past has for you, Jesus expects us to be productive Christians, to have a productive Christian life. But here's the second thought of this whole scene. He also expects from us a prayerful Christian life. And we see that very clearly in the reaction of the disciples. Now, the amazement of the guys here after seeing the tree wither instantaneously confirms Christ's divinity. We know that only he is the one who can order nature to do something and it'll happen. Just like in creation. So don't miss the connection here with the Christ, the Redeemer, and the Creator with what happened in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, he said, let there be light. And nature all of a sudden obeyed. And there was light. But now we see here, he cursed the fig tree and nature obeyed immediately. Now their amazement prompted Jesus to teach them a lesson about faith. Look at verse 21 here again. Perhaps one of the most abused, misunderstood, 
misquoted, misapplied parts of Scripture. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. Oh, how I've heard this verse being used as a proof text for many things that have nothing to do with the original intent of Jesus Christ here. The people who use verse 21 as a proof text for the word of faith movement missed the point by miles and produced the rotten fruit of inserting positive thinking, which is a pagan idea, into Christianity. By now, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have already observed Christ's masterful use of figures of speech. Remember, he is the creator of beauty. He's the creator of communication and the creator of language. And he uses figures of speech better than anyone. More noticeably, in the Gospel of Matthew, he uses hyperbole, which is a literary device that we use in our day-to-day conversations, even subconsciously. Now, in Matthew 17, verse 20, he first used the hyperbole of moving mountains. So this is not new, the hyperbole of moving mountains, because the expression communicated the idea of victory over impossible odds, you see? Now, he does it again in this scene here to make a similar point, namely that fruitful faith aligns the will of the praying person with the will of God who can do all things according to his nature. See, God can do all things according to his nature. There are some things God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot ignore the plight of the sufferer because these things are against his nature. But the point here is that fruitful faith recognizes that and seeks to align our will with the will of the Father. Now, in the previous scene, Jesus referred to the temple as a house of prayer. It's not a coincidence that in the very next scene, he teaches a lesson on prayer. He expects his followers to have a robust prayer life, a faithful, fruitful prayer life that is driven by faith in him. Now, praying to God as if he is a genie in the lamp just to give you what you desire, your dreams and your goals and your aspirations, that's not fruitful prayer. That is self-centered prayer. That is carnal prayer. And sadly, some preachers teach that. Just name it and claim it. Pray enough times and then you receive it. There's a Greek expression that describes that. It's baloney. Verse 22, circle the expression, all the things you ask, or all things you ask. Because that clause is, under, is very important here in this verse. and needs to be understood in the context of God's will. And here's how that works. The more you abide in Christ, the more you're going to favor His plans over yours. The more you abide in Christ, the more you're going to desire to accomplish His will. Even if that means suppressing your own will. Even if that means burying your goals, burying your desires, putting self to death. Even if it means temporary sorrow. That's true faith. Now, fruitful, mountain-moving faith manifests in prayers like this. Quote, Lord, every resource I have comes from your hand. I refuse to even attempt this by my own power. I would like you to change this particular situation or my particular predicament. Nevertheless, thy will be done. That's why James writes, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So we reject the popular but unbiblical notion that we don't have material or spiritual blessings because we don't have enough faith to receive it. Now, think about the flaw of logic in this thought process. This is a self-defeating philosophy, okay? You heard, anybody here heard this before? Oh, so-and-so doesn't have the, the jet or the car or the mansion because he or she doesn't have enough faith to receive it. Or you, you don't have the, the, the raise because you don't have enough faith to receive it. That, that is a self-defeating 
philosophy, at a logic that doesn't even make sense because of this. The fact that you're asking <laughs> implies that you expect an answer. Expect that you believe that God will answer that prayer. Why bother praying if you don't think he's going to respond, if you don't have faith that he's going to respond? The problem is our faith is sometimes not aligned with God's will. I don't know anybody who would go to the trouble of asking something that they know they will not receive. What a waste of time. So faithful prayer, according to the expectation of Jesus, he articulates, I believe God can do this. There's no doubt that God can heal this person. There's no doubt that he can take care of my cancer. There's no doubt that he can snap his divine finger and my house is paid for. There's no doubt that he can give me a job tomorrow. There's no doubt that he can change my heart from sorrow to joy in a twinkling of an eye. We know that because he's all-powerful, he's all-loving, he's all-wise. The question is, what is his purpose for my life? Does he want me to go through the process of walking with him? Does he want me to go through the process of making decisions based on biblical principles? But no matter what he gives me or withholds from me, I will continue to love him and follow him. That church is the type of faith that moves mountains. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org, where you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it, or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.